I'm excited to present the message today. We will be looking at the Apostle Paul, but also I will uh, ask you to look at your own life and how God's worked in your life uh, to see how you came to the Lord, when you came to the Lord, what was the process, and how you can speak to someone else. Uh, this morning also will be kind of uh, announcement heavy. I'm sorry, we will follow up with you to help you understand uh, things in the days ahead. You see, next week's uh, message will be from the story of Cornelius when God is clearly taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And so from the Jewish perspective, there you are. I wondered where you went. Uh, as the lights come up, <clears throat> from the Jewish perspective, here come the great unwashed. And that's one of the challenges in evangelism and bringing people into the, uh, the kingdom. A lot of times we are not comfortable with dealing with what we consider the unwashed. So we'll take a look at that next week. Then the next uh, week after that, and, and I will say I've spent a lot of time this week thinking through the passages and what would fairly represent them uh, with the titles here. And in Acts chapter 11, we will see what I call the great gospel stretch as the gospel continues to grow and stretch out into the world. September 11th, um, new insights in this passage. This is the passage where uh, Peter is incarcerated and we have the story of Rhoda, the, the servant, and uh, there's a lot of humor in that passage, but there's something that really occurred to me this week as I was studying that passage. And I'm going to call the, the sermon, Knock, Open, Amaze. And you'll see when we get there, because if I tell you now, you won't have to come. So I'm going to wait. So that's September 11th, which uh, coincidentally is the anniversary of 9-11, of course. Uh, but that's September 11th. September 25th, we will look at Acts 13, when the first missionary journey begins. Paul and Barnabas and Mark go off into the uh, lands of the Gentiles, and God is reaching the Gentiles. So to the Gentiles we go, and there's something special we're going to throw in there. Now, this is in the Sunday school hour starting September 25th. I am going to do a special program that I've been talking to you about, Making the Bible Come Alive. It's kind of hard to get into detail during the service about that. Uh, I try to do it a little bit, but not enough. So we're going to take the Sunday school hour for a few weeks, and we're going to talk about making the Bible come alive. Now, you know, we've been talking about persecution and the fact that if we ever had persecution, you would need to know the Word of God. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, need to know the Word of God yourself. You need to be conversant with it. You may not go to seminary, but you still need to be able to handle the Word of God well. Otherwise, what we'll have is what they had in the Middle Ages, where you listen to the priest, the priest tell you what to believe, and that's the way it is. So I want you to know your Word of God, to be like the Bereans, to be searching. Now, making the Bible come alive, just as you're deciding whether to attend, it will be highly interactive. This is not one of those cases where you sit there and I give you this, you know, bunch of notes. I will coach you to see things in the Word of God, and you will share what you're seeing. So it will be highly interactive, and uh, I think you're going to really be blessed by that. Now, I'm going to, to tell you this. You're going to get more announcements about the search. I can't say everything uh, that's going to be for the search team to say. But the search starts officially September 1st. And we've been talking behind the scenes and working on the plans. The search team has just about landed. And I, we have finished the documents that are necessary in advance. So I'm telling you, the search will begin September 1st. So we'll see what God has in mind, but I'm not giving you anything for October because somewhere along in there, whenever it is, you're going to have a guest speaker coming in and speaking, and, and so we'll just see. So for today, all I'm giving you is through the end of September. Uh, and let me go ahead and say this. I think you need to know we want to be transparent with you. 
The CMA philosophy is that the interim pastor would not be the permanent pastor. That is the policy of CMA. The elders have affirmed that. And just so you know, I fully agree. I am fully in alignment with that. I think that's the way it has to be. Uh, it's just problematic to do otherwise. So I'm just letting you know right now that the search will be for someone else. And at some point in time, I mean, to be honest, I'm going to have to step away. And I will not be here when that person comes in. I will leave in advance of that. That's only fair for that person. Uh, because what we found in searches is one of the worst things for a pastor coming in is to have other pastors in the church. And especially the guy who's just been here. It creates a difficult environment. So uh, I just want to let you know, we are entering a time of transition. We realize that. And uh, I'm just letting you know and being honest about that. You need to know about it. So we will see what God does from October 1st on, but this is the plan for September. And if you have any questions, feel free to come up afterwards. So speaking of making the Bible come alive, as we're looking at the scriptures today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, and I have titled this, I Saw the Light, and I heard you laugh last week, and I, you know, I, mean, I was wounded. <laughs> but, but really, I mean, it kind of fits. Paul saw the light, Saul saw the light, I saw the light, so work with me here. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. Acts 9, 1 through 31. And uh, as we do that today, I'm going to take it step by step as I did, and then at the end, I want to talk to you about your conversion and the process. And I really appreciate Chris mentioning middle space today, uh, because I'm going to come around to that at the end. But before we get into the Word of God, let's pray and uh, let's turn this time over to God. Father, just pray that you will take the Word this morning, speak to all of us and enrich us and guide us. And uh, I want to pray for that and uh, pray that you will uh, lead us through this and help us to see. There's things we think we know about the passage and then every time I study, I see new things. And I've seen that this week and I just pray that for all of us, this would be a revelation so that you would bring out your Word to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you'll, uh, I'm going to give you a few slides just to kind of set the stage here. First of all, the locations today, you'll see we're on the road to Damascus. We'll be in Damascus and we'll be in Jerusalem. And here's a map for you in case you're wondering where in the world is this. About 135 miles north northeast of Jerusalem is Damascus, obviously the capital of Syria now. These were the, the uh, divisions during the time of the New Testament, during the Roman occupation of the region. And Jerusalem is real tiny in there, but if you see in the bottom, Judea, I know you probably can't see, right above that it says Bethlehem, and then Jerusalem, which is five miles from Bethlehem. And then way up there where the red star is, is where Damascus is. So Paul is on the road to Damascus as he's nearing the city, he has his encounter with Jesus Christ. It's just amazing. So I, I am excited about getting into that today. As we do that, this actually is a passage that's ripe for the concept of making the Bible come alive. Now, when I say making the Bible come alive, I don't mean making the Bible itself come alive because Hebrews 4.12 says it's the living Word of God. We don't make it come alive, it's alive, but I mean making it come alive in our lives before us. And I want to show you something today. I mentioned this a while back, and I know I covered it quickly, which is kind of worse than not covering it at all, but it's the idea of narrative beat. We have to understand that the Bible is written often in narration form, that really every book in the Bible is a story in some way. And in a passage like this, we're in the book of Acts, it's very story-based, it's narrative, that's the way it is. 
And when you study story, there's a concept called narrative beat. This is really big when they do screenplays for movies or television. In fact, my understanding is that screenplay for a movie may have, I think that's officially 40 beats or something like that. But it's a short bit of action or dialogue that delivers a tiny moment of change and moves the story forward. It's the smallest unit of a story. And so you'll see that today when we get in the passage. You have Saul leaving, then something happens, then something happens, then something happens. When you're doing your Bible study and you're trying to understand a passage, look for the beats because that's where God gives clues as to what's happening and what relates to what. Um, on that note, there's a term called the word shift. Now, when you think of shift, you may think of uh, shift on your, your keyboard or something like that. But in coaching circles, the shift is when there's some kind of change uh, related to behavior or thinking or it's a realization. And I mention that because we see several shifts here in this passage. And for me, studying this story is absolutely fascinating to watch the shifts and the reactions that people have. And I hope you'll see that this morning. And then the other thing I wanted to share, uh, the idea of sequence, we talk about making the Bible come alive. Every verse pretty much has sequence, either timing, time words, you see it throughout here, or things happen in logical sequence, and that's really big in this passage. So be prepared as we look at the passage to look for the shifts, the beats, the timing. It's just amazing what happened. I just love this passage. It's awesome. So we're going to get into that, and then I'll get to the rest in a minute. So let's look at, uh, I almost said Psalms. Let's look at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, going back to Philip and what Philip did, now we see but Saul, on the other hand, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. When did the light shine around him? Suddenly. It's kind of a word of time. All of a sudden, boom, it was there. All this journey over 100 miles, he comes to the outskirts somewhere of Damascus, and boom, the light hits. Saul had gotten letters to extradite Christians in Damascus. I mean, and so now this is how aggressive he is to stamp out the church. He's getting on the road, he's coming up to other places, and he is searching out men and women who are followers of Jesus Christ. He's got the authority of the high priest in Jerusalem, and he's going to the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues of Damascus, searching for Christians. But God is going to grab him and turn him in the opposite direction. It's just amazing. So put yourself in the sandals of Saul today to go through this change. As he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. 
Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Well, this is a serious charge. Jesus says, you're persecuting me. And imagine you're Saul, and you hear this. Now, we assume that this is just out of the blue, literally, uh, Saul's light and conversion. But it could well be that along the way, as Saul uh, was involved in the Stephen stoning and approving of that, and as he persecuted the church, that somewhere he may have been hearing what was said, and God may have been prompting his heart we're not sure. But Paul, like any unbeliever, was gambling with his life. And if you're watching today online, uh, just you need to think about this. The great rejection of God, the great atheism, the great agnosticism, all is basically you rolling the dice with your life eternally. It's basically saying, in my own limited human understanding, I am convinced there is no God, there is no reason to submit to God, and I'm willing to stake my eternal destiny on that. Let's be honest. It is the great gamble of your life to keep putting God away. Because who knows when your time may come. And we see it all the time in the news, and yet we don't think about it with regard to ourselves. So I just want to say from a practical point uh, today, if you're pushing God away, it's the great gamble of your life. And Scripture has ample evidence that you're going to lose the gamble. You're going to lose the bet. So Saul here doesn't take him longer to realize, oops, uh-oh, I mean, whatever he thought, I've been going the wrong way. What a shock to Paul, because obviously he was a man of incredible dedication, a man of determination, an aggressive man. And he realizes that he's been going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. Boom! He has to encounter that today in the story. And he falls to the ground. Now, one of the things about the light here, uh, we were on Mount Tabor in, in Israel in June when it got really, really hot. It was over 100 degrees. And we were on the top of the mountain. That's the Mount of Transfiguration. And what struck me that day was it was bright. It was really bright. And I thought, for Jesus' glory to be shining brightly on Mount Tabor gives me a new perspective on how glorious Jesus really is. And I've driven into Damascus, Syria, and it was 103 degrees. We were driving into town, and what I remember that day, it was extremely hot, and it was also very bright. And again, for Jesus' glory to be so bright here in that environment, it had to be amazingly bright. I mean, unreal. And so it blinds Paul. It blinds him for three days. And it's interesting, we'll see in a moment why that was. Now, his companions heard the sound, and they saw the light, but they did not hear the distinct words that were being said to Saul. So they were, they were oblivious to that. And I've often wondered in verse 5, this is one thing we will do later in making the Bible come alive, is the power of intonation and emphasis in Bible study and I've often wondered, where is the intonation as he said, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And as one of the commentators said, this is commentator speak, it was kind of like sir, but more. <laughs> so it was kind of like sir on steroids when he said Lord. 
And I imagine he's hoping that the answer is not Jesus. But it is. And I think it's, it's, we have to honestly look at what Jesus says. He's loving Paul. He's loving Saul. Like, I am Jesus, whom you are, present tense, persecuting. And I could zap you with fire and brimstone. By the way, this is an aside, but come up to me afterwards if you want more information about this. Uh, there's a guy who's actually found sulfur balls where Sodom and Gomorrah were. Yeah, isn't that interesting? But that's an aside. <clears throat> so Jesus speaks. He doesn't uh, go overboard with fussing Paul out or Saul. He just says, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now, when I was in Dallas Seminary, uh, one of the assignments we had somewhere early on in the course of study was to write a two-page paper on when you think Saul was converted, specifically what point in time. And I vaguely remember way back when, because I mean that was like back way back in uh, the Middle Ages, I vaguely remember what I said. But I would ask you now, before I give you my answer, when do you think Saul was actually converted? He saw the light, fell on his face, he's blind, he goes into Damascus, he will get baptized. So somewhere in there we know he had to have been saved. I think can't prove it, but I think I know the answer. Now, this is what I would say at this point in time. In verse 8, now obviously Saul had to get up, but the way it's packaged here in the passage, I think when Saul rose from the ground, that was a rising of obedience. And I think at that point in time, Saul was converted. That's my opinion. And his eyes were open, but he saw nothing, so they had to lead him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. He was fasting. We might look at that and say, how harsh, but actually that was an incredible gift from God for Saul to be blind for three days because it removed visual stimuli from his life and made him sit there for three days and contemplate his life, where he had been, what he had done, why he was wrong, and where he was going. I think it's the grace of God that God gave Saul three quiet days of contemplation. I bet you guys would pay money to be able to have three uninterrupted days of contemplation. Am I right? I think it's the grace of God. It's interesting. I had a a friend who, uh, when he was an unbeliever, he did a really, 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 really horrible thing. He got drunk and something really, really bad happened. And it just about destroyed him. And he spent three days crying and doing business with God. And he came to Christ and his life turned around. And sometimes our rebellion and our direction is so strong that God has to get our attention and lay us waste for several days. And by laying us waste, that's an act of grace. And that's what we see. So Saul rises up, I think, in obedience. And now we're going to shift. Notice the shift and see. We've already seen some shifting because there's a big shift in Saul's life, realizing he was going the wrong direction. And in verse 10, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. 
So far, so good. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. <laughs> well, Ananias is thinking, not that, Saul. You've got to be kidding me. And Ananias said to the Lord in verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias obeyed. Now before I go to that part, I want to show you a few things here. First of all, Paul is praying. And so his instinct was right. When he is blind for three days, he is spending that time fasting, apparently, and praying. And he is seeking God's will, and he's contemplating his life and his direction. Prayer in Acts is just basically saturating the book of Acts. And I put these up there. Now, what we're going to do, we, we always post the slides, and we'll post these slides. You don't have to write all these down right now. You don't have to take a picture unless you want to, but on our website... Feel free to take a picture if you want. But on our website, we'll have these, but these are the occurrences of prayer in the book of Acts. Prayer and vision together are common in the writings of Luke. And remember, Luke wrote the book of Acts, so this is Luke volume 2. So they didn't just go off on their own. They prayed to God. They got direction for God from God, just like Jesus. When I get to heaven, I'll ask him, just how did you go without sleep all those nights where you prayed in the wilderness to get God's direction? So that is our model in the Bible, is prayer for the direction of God. And by the way, we are doing prayer this afternoon, or after the service, it won't be this afternoon, because we realize how important that is. And it's kind of ironic to be in ministry and to not be focused on prayer, right? So if prayer is so important to the early church, should it not be important to us? It was the lifeline. And that's what we see with Paul and others. In verse 13, I'm going to pop back. Well, let, me, let me go back. Verse 11, the street called straight. You know why the street called straight was called straight? Because it was straight. This is Damascus, modern-day Damascus, uh, the mountain overlooking Damascus, which has uh, listening posts and everything else for the Syrian forces, but also that's the mountain. It's interesting, when the sun goes down at night, it's eye-opening because you see green lights all over the city, and the green lights are all mosques, and it really struck me that here we see Paul going to Damascus, the origin of Paul basically in terms of being a believer location-wise is Damascus, and yet now it's just saturated with mosques. That I'm not kidding you, that is the street called Straight. It's now a bazaar, basically, but that is the street called Straight. One of the Roman gates is still there. It's kind of, you know, broken up, but it's still there on the end of it. Now, I am not kidding you when I tell you this. This is the house of Ananias, or Judas. It is believed this really is the house. And so you can go to it today. 
and that's the inside of it. So like a lot of places in the Middle East, in the Bible lands, they've been turned into shrines, but that preserves them. That's the other side of it. This is the house of Judas. So isn't that crazy? To, to be in there and to think this is where Paul came. It's amazing. So there you go. Uh, so <clears throat> while they're there, Ananias at first doesn't want to do this. He's afraid of Paul, but then God says, I've chosen him. Now, if you don't mind a little clever thing here, God chooses the one he uses. No choice, no voice. That way, God gets the glory in your story. Now, I could throw this in there, but you'd have to be the right uh, theological persuasion. If not elected, you are rejected. But anyway, I'll move on. Um, <clears throat> so this is the mission statement of Saul in verse 15. The Lord says, go, for he is a chosen instrument. I have chosen him in advance, like Chris said, in eternity past, to be my instrument, to carry my name. And isn't this amazing? Would you like this in your life purpose given by God? Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I think that's remarkable that God put that in there as a part of the mission of Saul. And Saul did suffer. You know, he was shipwrecked in the book of Acts. Later in the book of Acts, he was shipwrecked, though, apparently at least four times. He was beaten. It was eight or nine cities, I calculated. He was beaten and mistreated. Uh, we'll see later where he may have actually died or he came close to death being beaten, uh, you know, whipped, all those kind of things. And what God said here came true. Yikes. Consider the magnitude of this. So Ananias obeys, and he's going to commission Paul or Saul. So verse 17, he departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, look how quickly Ananias gets it. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight then, notice the sequence, then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. So it's a risk, but Ananias takes the risk. And notice he's not an apostle, but he still has the power to give the Holy Spirit. And he baptizes Paul. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this last time about the whole thing about baptism, about when you do it. But that was one of those seminary discussions that guys would have around a coffee table. When should you baptize someone? When they come to Jesus Christ or after they've gone through a class. And we used to kick that one around quite a bit. But what I noticed in the book of Acts is when they come to Christ, they're baptized. So, you know, make of it what you wish, but that's what I noticed. Uh, Paul's baptized right away. And he makes a statement, I now follow Jesus Christ. And he's strengthened. And so now in verse... Uh, 19 and following, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And he was a bold man. Get this. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Imagine the shock because everybody knows he's been after the church. And imagine the shock. Now he's going around saying, I was wrong. Jesus is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. 
Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, verse 23, the Jews plotted to kill him. That seems to be the common reaction. But their plot became known to Saul. Now sometimes the disciples would actually stay there and be persecuted and sometimes martyred. In this case, the church felt that they needed to get Saul out of there. He was being watched day and night. But in verse 25, his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket, and they got him out of town. Now, we're not going to answer this today, but I will say that one of the discussions about the book of Acts is what happened next for Paul. It says he goes to Jerusalem. He also went to Arabia. He spent three years studying the Word of God, which would have been the Old Testament. And he prepared for his ministry. So some people feel that after this, he went to Arabia for three years and then Jerusalem. Uh, But uh, I can't resolve that for you tonight, just making you aware of it. In verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, now he's going to the mothership. He attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. (laughs) I wonder why. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, praise God for Barnabas. Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he, Paul, or Saul, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Imagine you were a priest back then, and you thought that he was your agent of destruction, and now you see that he's actually opposing you and speaking about Jesus Christ. Now, Satan is a murderer. He is a liar and a murderer and has been since he first rebelled against the Lord. And so Satan fires them up to kill Paul, but Paul will only die when God is ready. And in verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. We've seen that word before. They were the ones who stoned Stephen, and Paul was on their side, but not now, and they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea on the coast and sent him off to Tarsus to go back home. So the summary here in verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. A little bit of tension here. Tension's not necessarily bad, but they both fear the Lord and they trust him. But I don't want you to miss the fact that they had peace even though persecution had broken out. Persecution is not what kills peace. Peace is a choice in the heart to trust the Lord. And you can be not persecuted, because after all, if you're no bother to Satan, he's not going to persecute you. Why would he waste his time? But you can be not persecuted and not have peace, for sure. And one thing I've noticed in lands of persecution, they tend to have peace. So I want to 
shift, that's the story today. I'm not going to go into the rest of the chapter, but I want to shift right now and draw out an application. And my question for you is this, this morning, what is your salvation story? What is your salvation story? Stories are different. I mean, there's only one pathway to God, that's through Jesus Christ. But there are a lot of ways that God gets us to that point. So I'll tell a little bit about my story as I weave it through here. But uh, when I was in college, I was called into ministry when I was a junior in high school. I, I actually literally wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. I was getting ready to apply. And God called me to ministry, and he convinced me the fact that I'm, <laughs> I'm not quite legally blind, but I'm blind as a bat. He's like, Sid, you're not going to be able to fly. And, and anyway, I decided to go to seminary and prepare for seminary. When I was in college, I was licensed to preach in a Southern Baptist church. Now, there were two of us that night being licensed. The other man, he was an older man, was a Marine. Not just a Marine, he was a Marine in the Pacific during World War II, and he fought at the Battle of Peleliu. And if you know the history of the Marine Corps, you know that that was one of the brutal battles, like Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Peleliu was horrible. And he literally, it was something like this, he got through the surf to get to the beach, which was not a given, and he got there and he fell on his face and said that famous prayer that so many people have prayed over the years, oh God, help, and basically said, God, if you will get me through this, I am yours, you have my life. And that was his conversion story. And the amazing thing about it, what I remember, was that he cried all the time. And we used to wonder, what's up with this? But now, as an adult and knowing about PTSD and all those other kind of issues, and knowing more about the Battle of, Battle of Peleliu, I know why he cried so much. But he got licensed to preach, and I thought that was just amazing. So we all have our conversion stories. A friend of mine was a Navy instructor pilot, good buddy of mine. I actually baptized him in a swimming pool, but then later as a believer, I won't give the name of the cult, but there was a certain group called a cult, and he would pray that God would bring him student pilots from that group. And he would flip his T-34 upside down, and while they're hanging upside down, he'd be like, so, tell me about such and such, you know, what they believed in. And uh, I thought that, that was interesting. But we all have our own conversion story. He was led to Christ by another Navy pilot. It was just so cool to see God work in the military, like Ian said, in the Army, or the Air Force, the Navy, Marines, whatever. So what's your story? Let's talk about that for a second. Leonard Ravenhill had this quote, if Jesus had preached the same message that ministers preach today, he would never have been crucified. I just thought that was an interesting quote. But let's talk about conversion stories. First of all, we all have a past life. Now, some people are converted very young, for sure, but then there are a lot of people that are converted later in life, which means they have a past life. Then God starts to work in their life. So my question for you this morning is, when did God start working in your life? Have you thought about how far back that was? Because I think even with Paul, I think it was further back than we realized. Some of God's working was unseen. Some of it was seen, maybe recognized later. It may have been well before you knew. It may have been discipleship. I was uh, in a course in Philadelphia with Howard Hendricks, and Hendricks asked the really interesting question, when were the disciples saved? And 
you can kick that one around at lunch and figure it out, but it's going to be tough to figure out. And his point was discipleship begins before salvation. And I saw a study, I, it was a long time ago, I don't remember the methodology, but the study showed that the more, quote-unquote, discipleship that took place in a person's life before they came to Christ, the more likely it was their conversion would stick. I thought that was interesting. And as Chris mentioned, middle space. Did somebody come to you in middle space, not in a church, but in somewhere in the world and start talking to you? Upside down in an airplane? At a base? In a coffee shop? Somebody start talking to you and making you think about spiritual things? And then next we'll see understanding and conviction. When you understand the gospel you start to put it together the Holy Spirit is showing you what it means and you feel convicted of your sin sometimes that happens by the word privately you're reading the word I know a one Muslim man who read the Bible okay he was an unbeliever Muslim in the Middle East read it 21 times before he came to Christ full through the Bible don't answer how many of us have read the Bible 21 times a Muslim man was willing to do that, and he came to Christ. By messages or sermons, maybe you're in church and you hear a message, or maybe it's a message you see online. Uh, Billy Graham, when he was in Atlanta in the 90s, uh, went to that, took some students with me, and one of them was like, when's he giving the invitation or the, the altar call? And I'm like, he's doing it. That's why it's taking 20 minutes for people to stream down the aisles of the Georgia, Georgia Dome. By personal contact, you know, did somebody talk to you personally to reach you for Jesus Christ? Then you made a response. Now, one of the questions about there, there are some people who teach that you, if you don't know the exact moment you're saved, you're not saved. I fully disagree with that. I am not sure when I was saved. My dad uh, went to Vietnam. He was at Tan Sinh in Saigon. During that time, God was working on my heart. I walked forward at a kind of a moderate, theologically moderate church. I don't specifically remember a clear gospel presentation, which is why I want to make sure I give a clear one when I give one. Uh, later, I was baptized. But the following year, God bless the Army. I was at Sandia Army Base. We were stationed there in Albuquerque. And the chaplain of the base gave out copies of the cross and the switchblade. And I believe it was reading the cross and the switchblade, because I can remember it distinctly, I, I was into the book. I was sitting in the back seat of the car that day when we got home just reading the book. And I remember, God, if you can do this, I believe in you. And uh, so somewhere along in there, I'm not sure exactly when, I came to Christ. I know I'm a believer. So if you don't know the exact moment, it's okay. It's all right. But if you do, that's great. And then after that, what we tend to see is rapid growth. You're hungry. You're a new believer. And at that point, your spiritual success, quote-unquote, will be that you're surrounded by the body of Jesus Christ, that they help you grow, that you persist in the Word, that you persist in prayer, and that you are able to walk along and get on your feet. And we hope you don't leave the Word of God after that. So all of us have a story, right? So take a moment and just bow in prayer. And while your head's bowed and your eyes are closed, just think for a moment, when did God work in my life before I truly became a believer? What did God do? And who did he bring into my life? 
And while you're thinking that, if you're watching online or if you're here in person, could it be that maybe you could identify God's working in your life? Maybe a little bit of conviction? But you've never responded? And if that's the case, again, you're taking the world's biggest gamble. Now's a chance for you to respond to Jesus Christ and say, you know, Lord, I've heard the truth. I've never made it my own. I've never grabbed a hold of it. I've never accepted it. I've never accepted you. But I want to change that right now. And right now, I come to Jesus Christ. I throw myself on your mercy, Lord. Save my soul. I receive you as my Savior. There's nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven. It is a gift of God, not of works. But you have to receive the gift. It's offered to you right now. So if you've never clarified this and you're just not sure right now today, will you clarify this with the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you throw yourself in the grace of God and say, I receive you? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for our brothers and sisters here. And for those who are contemplating, Father, I just pray that we always have watching online or in-person people who are wrestling with this so that they might see their need for Jesus Christ. If we're going to reach the world, we've got to always be in middle space around people who don't know Christ. So right now, if anybody's wrestling with it, prompt their heart. May they turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.